0: So the book of Acts gives us a timeline, but also gives us a pattern of how God worked in the lives of these first followers of Christ and how not only did He grow His church, but how He grew through the lives of these individuals and people like Peter and Paul and and many other individuals, apostles and disciples who later became apostles, and God, um, each one of them each one of them uh, died because of their faith in Christ. Uh, that, uh, there's a few records of that in the book of Acts, but church history shows that they all, who were witnesses to the resurrection, all eventually were martyred, What uh, means that when you were killed because of your faith, uh, because of their faith in Christ. Now, the first part of the book of Acts that we covered uh, a while back, verses, chapters 1 through 12, the primary person in the first section of the book of Acts in chapters 1 through 12 is the apostle Peter. And from chapter 13 through the end, the Apostle Paul is kind of more of the dominant person. And that also is not just in the different in personalities, but also in the different ways that God was working at this period of time. Chapters 1 and 12 through 1 and 12 is we see the Apostle Peter, his ministry is primarily to the Jewish community, the Jewish believers. From chapter 13 to the end of chapter 28, we see the Apostle Paul who was a top leader, Pharisee, leader among the Jewish elite, teachers of the law. And God radically saved him, and and he was transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And his ministry, he was called to non-Jews, Gentiles. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 18 this morning. We're continuing to follow what we would say would be Paul's Uh, tour or his journey as a missionary with some of his companions. We're in the middle of kind of the second of these tours. Not only is he going further than the gospel has ever reached into Greece and the old, uh, in your Bible maps, might call it Asia Minor, but it would be modern Turkey and Mesopotamia and those areas where uh, there is a scattering of Jews there, but it's primarily non-Jews because Jesus Told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said that when the Holy Spirit empowers you, you shall be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem and Samaria, which was kind of just beyond Jerusalem, but also to Judea and, uh, and to the ends of the earth. And so now we see the gospel going forth to what we would call the ends of the earth. It's going beyond. Jesus uh, uh, said in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. He wasn't just a God of the Jews. He was a God of the Gentiles, the non-Jews as well. So this gospel is now going forth through, through now the leadership of the Apostle Paul and some of his companions. And so that's where we kind of pick it up. Now, last week, if you were here or you listened online, you remember that uh, in Acts chapter 17, Paul was in Athens, Greece. And he was there waiting on Timothy and Silas and some of the others to kind of catch up with him. And as he was waiting, if you remember, he does like maybe a lot of us might do, he kind of goes sightseeing and he uh, finds himself in a group of uh, Greek pagan philosophers at the place called the Aeropagus, uh, sometimes referred to as Mars Hill, and they began to have this dialogue and this debate because the Bible says that all they did was sit and gather and talk about new ideas. I called it the Oprah Winfrey Show of its day, all right? And they didn't really come to any uh, agreement, but they just kind of discussed all what are the latest philosophies. So Paul took opportunity, When remember what he said? He said, I see that you're very religious because you want to make sure that that you covered all your bases, you have an altar to the unknown God. And he says, that which you don't know, that's what I'm going to proclaim to you today. And that's where he begins to tell them about God as creator and leads them into talking ultimately about Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ was proven that he's the son of God because he was raised from the dead. Now when they heard about the resurrection, they went crazy because they just couldn't grasp that concept and it, again, it, understandably, but the Bible says that some came to saving faith in Christ. So he left Athens, Greece, and he went kind of a little bit west to a place called Corinth. Now you know about Corinth because there's two letters that Paul addresses to the church that was established and we'll see that today. In the city of Corinth, and we know those as First Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He, those are letters to the church at Corinth. And so, as he traveled to this city, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he's coming off the heels of that of that events in in Athens with those Greek philosophers, and when we uh, we can kind of get a little insight to what he was feeling if you uh, just listen. It should be on the screen. First Corinthians chapter. 2, verses 1 through 3, this is him writing at the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians and in chapter 2, and we see a little bit of kind of what he was feeling, because he wrote this maybe within a year or so uh, after he had obviously left there, and he's writing this letter back to him. Look at what he says. He says, when I came to you, that's where we're going to see in Acts chapter 18, he says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, He said, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I sometimes wonder if that was what was on his mind after dealing with those so-called brilliant people and uh, earthly philosophies or whatever. He said, I didn't come to you in brilliance of speech or wisdom, having just come from Athens. But he said, I came and I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the cross. He said, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Because one of the things that we find that as Paul traveled with his companions and taking the gospel into all these different areas, he was met with kind of the same way that we're met. Some people were, were interested. You know, they were like, okay, well, we'll here, yeah. Uh, some believed, and then some were just out and out hostile. And there was even some that were even threatening of their very lives. And so here Paul, you know, he, he's he's like all of it. He wants some good news. He wants to go someplace where people are going to be receptive. So we are going to look in our Bibles, and I hope that you brought them on your phone or the way Jesus carried them with a thumb index and leather. Uh, No, I'm just kidding for some of you that know that's a a joke. But look with me in Acts chapter 18, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. It'll be on the screen for your convenience, and you just listen as I read. So this is kind of the context, picking up Paul, he's now going into Corinth. And by the way, the city of Corinth, I should have said this earlier, it had a reputation as just a tremendously wicked, immoral city. It had a reputation of being a place... In which immorality it was a trade route and so there was not a lot of people who resided there for long periods of time and it was one of those places that was very highly commercial and it was because it was a commercial trade route for the ships and travel of, of goods and materials uh, the people there they there was great profitability in prostitution in fact there was a uh, altar an idol uh, to the goddess Aphrodite which was a Greek goddess and she was a goddess Sexuality, and so that this goddess of Aphrodite, uh, among the temple there of this goddess, there was what was called temple prostitutes, and at the night they would go out into the community. Uh, let's just say to raise funds. Can we leave it at that? They were unusual fundraisers. Okay, not godly fundraisers. All right, you with me? And it was a it was a dark place. It was an immoral place, and you would think, kind of like we do, we think. Oh, don't ever go there because that place is just too far from God. Aren't you glad there's nobody or no community or no people or whatever that is ever too far from God's reach? Amen? You know how I know that? Because I'm, I'm a living witness here standing before you today. Nobody is too far. And so Corinth, in fact, in the Roman theater, if they wanted to portray a character from the city of Corinth, they always used somebody that portrayed that character as a drunk because that was the reputation of the city. Okay? So just thought that would be helpful to know where Paul is going to. He thought Athens was wild. Now he's in Corinth, and maybe people said, you know what? Uh, why don't we just bypass Corinth? Eh, man, they're so corrupt. They're going to be worse than those Athenians. They're going to be worse. They're not going to give you a hearing, but let's see what God does. Aren't you excited that God always has a plan? When we think there's no plan, God always has a way. All right, let's pick it up and read. We're just going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, who was a uh, Roman uh, uh, leader there, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Remember, Luke wrote this. Luke is a physician, and Luke is a detail guy. So we get lots of details here. Paul came to them, Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife uh, team, and since they were of the same occupation tent makers by trade. Paul did that to earn funds while he traveled. He stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue because there was Jews there in Corinth, enough to establish a synagogue. He reasoned with them every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Now, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching The word. Okay, so his helpers came and now he could focus exclusively on preaching the gospel. And he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And when they resisted and blasphemed, that means his fellow Jews resisted and blasphemed, it said he took out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It was just a symbolic act. You remember when Pilate. At the crucifixion of Jesus, remember he symbolically washed his hands and said, I wash myself from this matter as though I don't have anything to do with you all. Okay, remember it was just a symbolic act. And so now he's going to focus exclusively on the Gentiles. Verse 7 So he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. He's not a Jew. And look at where he's living. He's living next door to the synagogue. We think we've got to travel to foreign countries to find somebody that needs Jesus. Guess what? He might have somebody right next door for you to share the gospel to. This guy's right next door to the synagogue Uh, Verse eight. Crispus, who's the leader of the synagogue, was so blown away. I know I'm adding some words here, so don't get concerned. uh, Was a leader of the synagogue, and when he saw that uh, this uh, this Gentile that lived next door was converted, he believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Now here's where we want to land. And many of the Corinthians, people thought they're just so far beyond. Look at what it says. When they heard, believed and they were baptized. Isn't that great? Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, they believed and were baptized. And this morning, in the time we have before we uh, baptize three individuals, we're just going to focus a little bit on verse 8 this morning and look at the pattern of saving faith. Just in that verse, in a brief time, the title of today's message is A Pattern of Saving Faith faith. Before we do that, let's pray, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you that it is light to us. It is a lamp to our feet. It is food. It is a guidance. Lord, even through looking at the working of your spirit through the Apostle Paul, we can see, God, how you operate, how you guide your people, how you work in people's lives in bringing them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse 8 and notice the simplicity of how Paul, just in preaching the gospel... And as a reminder, in these three words or three phrases, depending on your uh, translation of the Bible, uh, that we see this pattern of saving faith. The first component that we notice here is what I call perception. They heard the gospel. It's hearing the gospel. That's the first place. There was a perception. They heard the gospel. Verse 8. It says that, uh, that when the, many of the Corinthians, uh, that they came to saving faith, how did they come to saving faith? When they heard, okay? God in His providence has designed this message to be one that is meant to be spoken, to be heard. Now, again, certainly when we want to broaden that hearing, it means that it's meant to be communicated in reading or in speaking to be done. In other words, that he has designed the message of the gospel to be given through flesh and blood human beings. Now, I could come up with some really creative ways to bypass human beings if I was in charge, but I'm not, right? I mean, you think about it. Did God have to limit himself by us, by limiting himself, to human beings. He told us, I quoted a paraphrase in Acts 1.8. Jesus told those disciples that when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses. That's in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. What do witnesses do in court? You, okay, I see you watch a lot of Judge Judy too. Good. All right. They testify, they speak about what they've seen, what they've heard, right? That's what a witness is. Courts don't like, this is from years of Judge Judy, uh, PhD here, uh, they don't like secondhand information. They don't even like somebody writing a note and say, well, my neighbor Frank saw the guy steal my lawnmower. I don't care. It's not worth anything. I want a real flesh and blood eyewitness here. That's what Jesus commissioned his followers to do, right? To be my witnesses, all right? Romans 10.14 really fits and helps us here. Look at what Paul said in Romans 10.14. He asks this rhetorical question. He says, How then, talking about transferring the gospel and communicating communicating it, he says, how then can they call on him? How can they call on him they have not that they have not believed in? How can they call on somebody they've not believed in? And how can they believe without what? Without hearing. How can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? Now, that doesn't mean somebody who's gone to seminary or cemetery or whatever it is, you know, and and gotten a degree or whatever and stands up here. It just means how can they hear unless someone teaches them, proclaims, speaks to them or, or communicates to them. And so there must be a hearing of the gospel. I mentioned I, I could come up with some really creative ways to communicate the gospel. Here's some of my ideas. How about, again, if I didn't want to deal with human beings, because have you figured out that human beings are messy? They're unreliable. They don't keep their word. They make great promises, but... All right, I'll, I'll quit talking about my wife, and I'll start talking about... No, you know, I know that because I know i be one, right? So, you know, God has to deal with us. He has to deal with us as human beings. And so we can just come up with some ways that God can communicate the gospel and bypasses. I, I come up with the idea of gospel flowers, that, that flowers, tulips, uh, all sorts of flowers could go to the ground, and on their little petals or the leaves could be little scriptures. God could do that, Right? That wouldn't that be a lot easier? People could just go pick flowers, and and they would learn about Jesus. Wouldn't that that'd be kind of cool, right? Um, how about clouds that a formation, and you see uh, who's it? Paul on Fox 13? He would give a forecast and say, well, here's that John 3.16 cloud coming in from the west today. And there it is, that John 3.16. Boy, it'd be nice to get some other Bible verses, but I guess God... God didn't write John 3.16 in the clouds, did he? He didn't do that. Uh, How about, you know, now we know there's an episode in the Gospels where a fish had a coin in its its mouth because the disciples had to go pay some taxes, right? That's why I always go fishing a lot before April 15th. But he could have put gospel tracts in the mouths of fish, or maybe now he could put a little MP3 thing in there. communicate. You get the idea. He didn't do any of that. What did he do? He chose flesh and blood human beings. You know why he did that? Because that's how he did it. The Bible says that Jesus himself in John 1, 14, God, a very God, came how? In human flesh. We call that the incarnation. The message of the gospel is to be incarnational. It's to be wrapped up in human flesh, not fleshly in a, in a negative sense, but it, it is to be communicated how? By human beings who have been, lives have been changed and transformed by the wonderful truth of Jesus. So we're, we're not off the hook, guys. I love the story in John 4. Jesus was tired and thirsty, and his humanity, he experienced all those things. And the Bible says in John 4, that he stopped, sent his disciples in to buy some food or wherever they were going, and he stopped at a well, and a Samaritan woman was at the well. And if you know a little bit about Bible history, you know that Samaritans and Jews who were kind of somewhat related in the family tree, but they really couldn't stand each other and they didn't converse or communicate, and he asked this Samaritan woman to give him a drink at this well, and they had this dialogue. And if you remember that story, read it some other time than now. But in that story, Jesus begins to uh, ask the woman questions, and he tells her to go get her husband, and she says, well, I don't have a husband. He goes, you're right. You've had five of them, and now you're shacked up with candidate number six, lucky guy. Uh, So uh, he says, you don't have a husband. Uh, And he begins to tell her things about her life, and it just blows her away. Now, she remember in the conversation, she wants to get religious and start talking about what mountain we're going to worship on. That's what people do. You ever notice that when the Holy Spirit uses you in a conversation and and the conviction of the Holy Spirit begins to take in their life, what do they want to start doing? They want to ask, well, by the way, where did uh, Cain get his wife? they want to ask you some weird question that has nothing to do with what you're talking about. Why? Because they don't like how the Holy Spirit and you are guiding this talk. They don't like where this is going, so they want to get off on what Bible version you use. You know, they want to get off on something that does not matter. Why? Because the conviction of the Spirit's coming in. That's what this woman did in John 4. But Jesus, he wasn't, he wasn't deterred by that one bit, was he? He just kept kept going right through. And this woman came to saving faith in Christ. Now, here's what's cool. I said all that to bring you to verse 39 of John 4. I want you to see something because we're talking about how the message is to be heard in order to be believed. This woman became an evangelist for Christ because it says after she left that encounter with Jesus she went back to her hometown and then as a result of her talking about what she who she had met and how her life had changed look at verse 39 it says now many samaritans from that town the town that she was from did what they believed in Christ how did they do that what does it say because what of what the woman said when she testified and so here we're back in acts chapter 18 We see that many of the Corinthians came to faith in Christ because they heard the truth of the gospel, that there's a second component as we see just in the latter part of verse 8 a pattern of saving faith. Not only do we see perception, hearing the gospel, but we see secondly possession, possession, which is belief in the gospel. The folks at the city of Corinth, in Corinth, They'd only heard the truth of Jesus from the Apostle Paul, but they demonstrated genuine saving faith by believing what they heard. Just like the Samaritans we read in earlier in John 4, 39. They believed because they heard. They were responding by faith to what they heard. Now, what's really important, because sometimes there's confusion about what does it mean to believe? Here's what it does not mean in the sense of, how the New Testament uses the word believe. This is what it's not. It's not just agreeing to historical facts, like, I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, and I believe that He uh, was resurrected, all those great truths. You may believe all those things, but they're just kind of like you believe them in the way that you believe George Washington was the first president and you believe that Pearl Harbor happened on December seventh, nineteen forty-one, and you believe on September eleventh, two thousand and one, that the 20, You believe in history. You believe in facts, but that doesn't do any good. You know why they say there's roughly about eighteen inches from your brain to your heart. Jesus isn't just yes. He's not anti-fact. The Bible is a book of facts. The Bible is a book of history. These are real events and stories in history. But Jesus transformed the heart. Believing is more than just an intellectual agreement to factual information. Belief has to do with a change of heart. Some people think that believing means that I've got, uh, okay, well, I believe in, 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 in Jesus now, so I've got to go clean up my life before I can be a follower. You can't clean your life up that good. That's impossible. I'll just start going to church. You ever hear somebody say that? You just need to get back in church. No, you need Jesus into your life. And hopefully you want to be around other believers and do these other things. But it isn't becoming more religious. I need to start listening to Joy FM and get off the classic rock. You know, I need to get off Black Sabbath and ZZ Top now, I'm dating myself, all right, because I have no clue of what's out there now. But, uh, you know, I need to quit going to, you know, I need to quit doing that. I need to start listening to Joy FM, and I'm just, you know, Joy FM. All right, I'm a Christian. i got to start doing all this. I need to get a fish symbol and put it on my car. Please take it off if you drive like some other maniacs. Please don't let anybody know you're saved. You're a Christian. Get that off your car, right? You see, we don't need to get more religious that somehow we want to make ourselves more appealing and favorable to God. That's impossible. Here's what it means to believe in a biblical sense believe certainly is that Jesus received you. Listen carefully. It's certainly, we do not deny that Jesus receives us just as we are. What was the great hymn always sung? If this is your generation at a Billy Graham crusade, just as I am. Great, great hymn. But here's the thing. Jesus receives us just as I am, but he doesn't leave you where you are. Don't forget that. A false understanding is the idea that a person can receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, receive free grace, eternal life, and then walk away to continue living as they please? Saving faith to believe in Jesus Christ involves hearing and believing, but this believing is more than just mental agreement to truth, it is an act of the will. And even the ability to act of the will in of itself is a gift from God. You can't do that by yourself. Uh, This chair, I might have all the belief in the world that that chair can support me. Now, if you look at some of these other chairs around here, um, you have to have a lot of faith, right? You see that busted leg there? So just know. You'll never live that down. I don't care what you're playing. The day that it happens, that you keel over and fall off that thing, we'll just end the service right there, okay? Um, But I can have all the faith in the world, and I just say, I I believe in that chair. But you know what? It means nothing until I do what? I've got to, hey, who said sit on it? Um, I've got to sit on it. I've got to, you know what? Belief involves trust. I'm I'm trusting in Christ. And so belief, again, is more than just informational truths and involves that, but faith is that I'm trusting in Christ. The New Testament, hear this, the New Testament does not know of a type of person that says that they are a genuine follower of Jesus and remains in a lifestyle of sinful disobedience, where they're comfortable with truths that Jesus directly has taught differently. When we come to faith in Jesus, we're coming to Him, not just as Savior, with an option to make Him Lord at some other date. You know, we get a deal and think, okay, I remember when I got some glasses, they said, you got 30 days if you want to buy some prescription sunglasses. And I thought, oh, that's cool, Till they gave me the price. I'm like, you know what? I think I'll stick with my Walmart ones. But I had that option for 30 days to go back where my insurance would cover, you know, $3 of the whole thing or whatever it is. I had that option to add it later. Here's the thing, guys. You don't have the option that someday, when you're ready, you'll add this lordship thing To this following Jesus. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is Lord. What does Jesus say in John 14 15? If you love me, if you love me, you will what? Doesn't say read them. That's important. But you keep my commandments. There's an interesting verse in Hebrews 5 9 speaking about Jesus as our high priest. Notice what it says in verse 9. Notice the phrasing. Hebrews 5.9, after he, speaking of Jesus, was perfected, look at this, he became the source of eternal salvation for who? For all, but what's the condition? All who obey him. The Bible teaches that when a person believes in Christ, they're placing their trust in Christ as their only hope for eternal life, and this is evidenced by a life characterized by, by obedience to the one that they trust. That's believing. That's biblical, saving belief in Christ. So there's, perce- there's perception. And then there must be possession, which is what we just talked about. But thirdly, there must be profession. Baptize according to the gospel. Now, this message today, that, just, that is where in our study of Acts all these months, this is just where we landed today. And it happened to be where we have these people responding in water baptism. You know what would have made this a really perfect message? If they had thrown a child dedication in there too. Wouldn't that have been cool? And they believed, and they were baptized, and they dedicated their child. I'd be like, perfect, this, this works out great today. All right, they didn't do that. Some of you are visitors here, and you think, this guy, I'm not sure where he's coming from, his humor. I mentioned Billy Graham, great, the greatest evangelist, really, really greatest evangelist of all Christian history. More people were saved under Billy Graham's ministry than Paul or anybody in history. Great, and plus, he lived a life to the day he died of a man of character and honor, and we should really be thankful for his life and legacy. One of the things that, and I say it and I do it, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, I'm just trying to make a point here is that sometimes we'll say, and I'll do this oftentimes at the end of a service, don't do it all the time, but I will say, if you want to make a profession of your faith, then I invite you um, to come, and I'll be down at the front to pray with you. You're not saved because you walk an aisle, but I'll just, I give you the opportunity to respond. But sometimes we've called that a public profession of faith. How many of you know what I'm talking about here? Okay. And as i thought about that and, and 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 learning from what the new testament that really is something that you you certainly don't find that in the new testament they didn't have walking an aisle, that's really something that nobody in Christian churches did till probably around the mid-1800s. People like a man named Charles Finney and others, uh, that was an invention kind of in meetings that they did at that time. And, and, and I don't want to say there's anything wrong with it per se. Where it becomes wrong is people associate that if I walk an aisle or I do this, that, and the other, that's what makes me saved. No, Jesus saves you, okay? And if you respond That's good, but that's not what we're teaching or saying here. So that profession of faith, what is a profession of faith? What is that public response to hearing, believing? Is there something that is publicly done to signify not only to the Lord, but really to others, my friends and family, that I am a follower of Christ? Well, I believe it's water baptism. Interesting when you read about Muslims and people in other countries of, of, of Islamic, uh, the religion, and, and some of the others, but especially Islam, and this is also true in Judaism, but Islam uh, a little more radical, that when a person comes to saving faith in Christ, when God opens their eyes to the gospel of Christ, and they come to saving faith, and they follow in obedience and are water baptized that is a weight that is put upon them that is likened to like a death sentence. Because for them to make... It's one thing to keep it in house because they would bring great shame to refute Islam. But when they are water baptized, they are making a public profession that I identify and I am a follower of Jesus Christ. They know in many places in which the radical Islamic community has weight and hold, and there's been situations here, even in the United States, that they know that when they do that, they are essentially signing their death sentence because of the response of being baptized. Why? Because they recognize or because it's identified as a public profession or acknowledgement. And so this morning, we're going to water baptize three individuals and their profession of faith as an expression of their publicly, uh, uh, the public expression of them acknowledging and following Jesus. Now, keep in mind, water baptism does not save you. There are some groups that teach that falsely the act of being put in water that doesn't save you here's a way that I've always found helpful is that water baptism there's two ordinances that God has given the local church water baptism and communion both of them are symbols of spiritual realities they're pictures of a spiritual reality Okay? And so uh give you a couple examples of baptism real quickly. In Acts two forty one, on that day of Pentecost, when people heard the message, they believed the message, and they responded and professed it. Look at verse 41. It says that those who accepted His message, that's, that's the Apostle Peter, how, how did they demonstrate their acceptance? It says when they accepted His message, they were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to the church, okay? So, what we see in the Bible, the Bible teaches that water baptism is a response of individuals who hear and accept the message. That's why there's really nothing that teaches in the Bible the baptize of infants or babies. That, that's, that's something that was imported way later and is not in, a, in Scripture as taught in the Bible because the Bible always shows and demonstrates and teaches that a person is water baptized after they have accepted the message of the gospel, after they have received Christ Jesus. Give you another example in Acts chapter eight. Acts has is a wonderful resource for all these things. Now this is this is Philip. And if you remember when we covered this, this is Philip in Acts chapter eight, and he came alongside this high official from Ethiopia who had been in Jerusalem, and he comes alongside of him riding in his chariot, and he could hear him reading from the Hebrew Bible. The Ethiopian man was not. Jewish or Hebrew, but apparently he had bought some scroll or scripture when he was in Jerusalem, and he is reading from Isaiah 53. Now, if you know, when we looked at Isaiah 53 several weeks back, right before uh, Resurrection Sunday, that is uh, God's word foretelling prophetically the coming of Messiah who would be a substitute. Okay, so he's reading in the Old Testament, New Testament wasn't written yet. He's reading about Jesus. And so Philip, full of the Spirit, says, do you understand what you're reading? And he begins to share Jesus with him. Now let's pick it up in verse 35. Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus beginning with that Scripture, an Old Testament Scripture in Isaiah 53. And verse 36 says And as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch or the Ethiopian official said to Philip, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? Now, just think with me. This guy is a wealthy guy. He's a big shot official from the country of Ethiopia. Do you think he had a water bottle in that chariot? Just curious. Do you think he had a water bottle in there? I think he did. I think he had snacks and food and all sorts of stuff. I mean, there was an entourage going there. But he must have been communicated by Philip that water baptism involved in what the word baptism means. It comes from a Greek word, because the New Testament is written in Greek, that means baptizo, and the word literally means to immerse. So, They could have done a little shotgun baptism in the chariot, and Philip could have been on his way. Just take some of that that, uh, Fiji water you got there, man, and just let's, we can just do this right now. No, notice what he says. He says, Look, here's a body of water. Here's some water. I can be baptized. In verse 38, notice the language. This is, so he, this Ethiopian man, ordered the chariot to stop. Notice the language, both. Philip and the eunuch, this man from Ethiopia, what did they do? They went down into the water. You with me? And what happened? Philip baptized him. We call that or refer to that as believers' baptism.